news. This is pretty embarrassing. But what was even worse news is that event took place on the Friday, but I'd organized on the Saturday for all the teens group to come together, and we were going to do the climbing wall together. And this was a freaker outer for me because I just found out the day before that I am afraid of heights. And so we get to the day when it is the climbing wall. I've barely slipped a wink. I'm freaked out about what is going to take place. And I know what's going to happen. And it does indeed unfold just like I thought. We arrive at the climbing wall. All of the 60 teens are clapping and cheering. Everybody is excited about ascending the wall. At which point they ask, who's going to volunteer to go first? I begin to retreat, at which point all the teens push me forward and say, Dave will go. Oh, please, Jesus, if there's any way. And I just remember getting to the bottom of the climbing wall and just looking up at this wall with everybody looking on at me and just thinking, oh, no. It was such a horrible moment. Just think, I've, I've got to try and climb this thing. And everybody's kind of watching. This is scary. Well, in many ways, as we come to this question today, I feel like I'm back at the adventure weekend away. (laughs) Because today, we've got to climb a wall together. And as I look at it, I, I think it's a wall of religious relativism. And as I look at that wall, I do think, oh no. You see, the reality is, in our society and in this country, religious relativism is the dominant philosophical idea in this country by a long way. You see, you may not have heard of it called religious relativism, and yet you will have heard of the philosophy, and you will have imbibed it and understood it, because we're taught it for many, many years. See, religious relativism is the idea, the philosophical idea, that ultimately all roads lead to God. And so whatever religion you're in, everything and every religion does indeed point to God, that every religion has a piece of the truth. You may have heard it described before as the blind men coming into the room with the elephant. And so you get this idea that a group of blind men come into a room, they have never seen an elephant before, and they're all taken to a different part of the elephant. And they start feeling around the elephant, and then the question comes to them, what is an elephant? And one guy that's touching the trunk says, well, you know, it's kind of long and thin, and it gets smaller at the end. Another guy's got his leg, and they just say, man, this is a vertical powerhouse. Another blind man's just pressing around the chest, like, "This this is just a huge wall. And the idea is then that, well, everybody's right. It's just they're all looking at the elephant from different perspectives. And so they're all just describing what's really been apportioned to them. And this idea of religious relativism is undergirded with the simple and yet profound truth, or thoughtful truth, that there's no such thing as absolute truth. That there is no way for anybody to know in any shape or form absolute truth. This is an idea that you will have been taught either directly or subliminally For many, many years. It's what our government teaches. It's the idea that tolerance is the order of the day. And so we just tolerate everybody. And the way we tolerate everybody is basically by demanding that everybody's right. So everybody's free to choose their own thing. And everybody's right. We'll support everybody because everybody, well, let's go with that being the truth. It's the dominant philosophy that comes to our newspapers and TVs. We live in the age of toleration. And growingly, it is the dominant philosophy that's taught in our schools. Who is any individual to say that somebody else's faith is wrong? Let everybody be right. And so let's run with this. And so my children already taught that, that we just accept everybody and everybody's right. 
In Britain a few years ago, King, well, Prince Charles said that if he was ever going to become the king, when he was sworn in, he wants to be sworn in as the defender of the faiths. For years in history, it's always been the defender of the faith. Not anymore. He wants to be sworn in as the defender of the faiths, recognizing that, oh, everybody's right. So I want to defend everybody. Times have changed. And in all reality, religious relativism sounds very attractive, doesn't it? See, I think it does. And I can understand the appeal. Christianity sounds so arrogant, believing they think that they know the only way. But religious relativism sounds really humble. Sounds really attractive, really wide. Let everybody be right. Who is anybody to say to somebody else, particularly if they're a nice person and they do good in society, that their religion is wrong? So let's all be right. And let's all live together in happy multicultural families for the rest of our days. It sounds attractive, and yet I don't think it is true. And yet it's because religious relativism is taught so strongly that I get the feeling as I attempt this message that I'm back at the wall thinking, they're looking at me. Oh, no. Because I'm aware it's such a prevalent thought and something that is so readily accepted in our society. And so what I want to do and really try to answer is Christianity the only way to God. I want to do two things. I want to answer two questions. Number one, I want to say relativism. Is it all that it's made out to be? Let's examine it and let's put it under some pressure. And then secondarily, Jesus. Is he all that he's made out to be? So let's look first of all at relativism. Is it all that is made out to be? Well, profoundly, I want to say to you, no, it's not. And as soon as you begin to test relativism as a philosophy, it begins to incredibly break down. As soon as you put it under any pressure... you realize it just snaps and doesn't exist. And so although it is so prevalent in society and so dominant, put it under any pressure at all, and it realizes that it is absolutely useless as a philosophy. And so I want to test it with you so that you know where I'm coming from. See, the first test we must do is a test of coherency, and then we need to test it for consistency. So by very nature, if any argument is going to hold up, it has to be coherent, and it has to be consistent. So think with me, all right? Let's look at the first test, coherency test. Does religious relativism make sense? Can it really hold up? You know, several thousand years ago, there was a philosopher called Aristotle. And one day while thinking about philosophy and philosophical arguments, he worked out that, you know what? An argument is no longer an argument if it contradicts itself. That sounds fair enough, eh? You know, an argument, if if it's actually going to stand the test of time as an argument, it it has to be consistent. It can't contradict itself, otherwise it begins to break down, and and that obviously doesn't work. Well, using Aristotle's test on relativism, you realize it does indeed completely break down, because it does indeed contradict itself. See, to be a relativist, you have to believe that that there is absolutely no possibility of absolute truth. So we have to believe. So no individual can be right. Everybody's got to be right. Well, here's the problem with that argument. They're saying it's an absolute truth. So it is an absolute truth that there is no such thing as absolute truth. Uh, Hang on. Isn't that an absolute truth? Well, yes, but shh. It it folds in on itself. The whole argument contradicts itself. How can you say that absolutely you know that the grand truth is that there's no such thing as absolute truth? That is an absolute truth. So get out my face. Do you see the argument? 
It just completely folds in on itself. So even the test of coherency, although that can sound complex, if you just look at it very simplistically, you realize it doesn't even make any sense. One philosopher, one Monday philosopher, in thinking about this concept, said this. Love this. He said, if someone tells you that there's no such thing as absolute truth, they're asking you not to believe them, so don't. I like that. That appeals to me on every level. If they are asking you to consider that there is no absolute truth and telling you that that's the truth, don't believe them. Don't. Because they just told you not to believe them because there's no such thing as absolute truth. So you look at the coherency test and you realize, man, this is poor. But then when you examine the consistency test to it, it gets even worse. See, is religious relativism consistent? Can it really stand up? So this whole idea of all roads lead to God, that all religions are true, is that consistent with what all the other religions say? And you realize this leaves us with massive, massive ethical and religious problems because different religions believe very, very different things, hugely different things. Let me give you an illustration. When it comes to God, just isolate the God issue. A classic Buddhist will tell you that there is no God. A classic Muslim will say that there is one God, and his name is Allah. And a Hindu will come to you and say there are over 250 million gods. And a relativist will come to you and say, they're all right. What? They've just told me completely different things. You take the issue of when it comes to believing that how God accepts you. A Hasidic Jew is going to point you to an extensive list of rules and regulations, things that you must do to be accepted by God. A Buddhist monk is going to do exactly the same. He's going to come to you with a whole list of rules and regulations that you are going to have to keep to be accepted by God. But those rules and regulations are very different to a Hasidic Jew. And then you're going to go to an extreme Muslim, and he's going to point you to a bomb and a plane and tell you that's how you're going to get to God. And then a religious relativist is going to come to you and say... They're all right. What? You take Jesus as a concept and as a man. Christians say that to Jesus Christ, he came as God in the flesh. A Muslim would say that that is an abhorrent claim and that God would never become man. A Christian says that Jesus Christ died on a cross for the sins of mankind. Muslims refuse to believe that Jesus died on a cross at all because that would be abhorrent. So they believe that Jesus is a prophet. It would be abhorrent for a prophet to die on a cross. So they genuinely believe that the man that hung on the cross just looked like Jesus, but wasn't Jesus. And the religious relativist comes on out and says, you're both right. What? The argument is insane. To believe in religious relativism, we have to check our brains in on the way into the room. It's just insane. You examine its coherency, and you examine its consistency, and you realize, is religious relativism all that it's made out to be? No, it doesn't make any sense. The argument falls in on itself, and religions believe such massively different things. Everybody can't be right. All roads don't lead to God necessarily, because they all believe incredibly different things. So then what about Jesus? What about his claims? See, we've just examined the fact that relativism doesn't seem to work. You stand back and you just take the argument that all road leads to God. You realize that this is incoherent with everything that religion believes. So what about Jesus? 
Is he all that he's made out to be? And let's go ahead and turn to John chapter 14, please. Which is why I want to spend the remainder of our time. And I want to ask the question, Jesus, is, is he all that he's made out to be? Is he the real deal? If you've got a Bible, John 14, verses 1 through 7. If you haven't, no dramas. I'm going to read it anyway. This is what he says. It's Jesus talking. He says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, do we not know where you are going? How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You know, Jesus Christ makes a statement within that text that in 21st century Australia is very controversial. But he makes it anyway. And the claim that he makes is to absolute exclusivity. He basically says, I am the truth, the way, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. He's claiming that I'm the only way. I'm the only way to be reconciled to God. No one comes to the Father except through me. So it's me or nothing. And in 21st century Australia, that is indeed a very controversial claim. And yet the truth is, one of the important things to understand as you examine that text, is Jesus isn't making it to be like hardcore controversial. He's not. Right here, he's making it to try and be compassionate and care for the disciples. See, this is the Last Supper. Jesus Christ has just told them about what he's about to do. He's about to die. They've been walking around with Jesus for three years. They're his best friends, and he is their best friend. He loves them. They love him. They've gathered together as a group of men and walked around, and they have watched Jesus heal people. They've watched him communicating, and they have become deep, deep friends. But Jesus, their best friend, has just told them, I've got to go. I'm, I'm going soon. Well, they're, they're distraught. And so he begins to communicate to them a distinct and utter care. And so look, verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. He's trying to say to them, guys, listen, I know this is going to freak you out that I'm going. But don't let it be so. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Listen, believe in God. Believe also in me. For my Father... He has many rooms. He's talking about heaven. He's talking about how he's going to go ahead of them and prepare a place in heaven for them. And then he wants to comfort them with these words that helps them see, and you're coming as well. What are those words? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. For no one comes to the Father except through me. He wants to say to them and communicate to them, you're in. You believe in me as your Lord and Savior, and you, therefore, are well and truly in. He's saying it not to be controversial. He's saying it to communicate care. Care for these guys, and now care for us. As 2,000 years later, we look on and examine it for ourselves. And I think it's when we understand that context of care that it puts a very different spin on that same text, don't you think? Because you realize he's not trying to be antagonistic. 
He's just trying to, he's trying to care. He is without question making an exclusive claim. But he's not trying to be controversial in his exclusivity. He's trying to care for them. And I think it's as you begin to bottom that out and re-examine then what he's saying with that reasoning in mind that you start to see other things about this claim that make it so compelling and so incredible and indeed for myself, I believe, true. There's three things that I want to draw out in particular about it. Number one, the origin of Jesus' claim. Who is it that is actually saying these words? See, every other religion in the world, apart from Christianity, rallies behind a man or a woman who claim that they point the way to God. They're prophets. So they believe they're prophets. They are individuals who are giving themselves to carving out a religion where they are saying, I have met with God and he's told me that this is the way. Every other religion apart from Christianity, that's the case. Whereas Christianity rallies behind Jesus, a man who claimed both explicitly and implicitly several times not to point the way to God, but to be God. He claimed that he himself was God. And if you were here for the last reason for God, that's what we looked at. Just this audacious claim to deity, this audacious claim that this man rocks up and makes that he is indeed God. Now, as we said last time, just because somebody claims to be God doesn't make them God, right? I was watching a program on ABC a few weeks ago, and it was this guy in Queensland that claims to be Jesus. And he is absolutely convinced I am Jesus. And you think, no, you're a fruit. But he feels he is. So just because somebody claims to be doesn't make them be, which is why you have to establish the, establish the evidence from Scripture, which is what we did. And as you examine the evidence in Scripture, you realize the proof of Jesus being God is overwhelming. If you examine his works and his life, he, he He performed hundreds of miracles, things that wouldn't be explained if he was actually here now doing them. People go, "Uh, how did you do that? And do you know what his response was every time? I'll tell you how I did that. I'm God. That's what he communicated to people. You look at his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, 300 prophecies over 500 years in the Old Testament, all point to Jesus, 29 of them relating into the day he died, talking in detail about what is going to happen to this man on the cross. Well, it's hard to ordain your birth and death unless you're actually God. He fulfilled every single one of those claims. You look at his character. Even as he died upon a cross, having been falsely tried, falsely beaten, ultimately crucified, his communication is, Father, forgive them but they don't know what they do. His conquest of death, the fact that he rose again. Is it a mirage? Maybe if he only sort of produced himself to one or two people, then we could probably run with it. But he produced himself to 550 people, many of whom went on to die for the faith. Some crucified upside down, some some sawed in half, some fed to lions, believing that I have seen the risen Savior. That's a full-on thing to do if you haven't really. But they died for it because they believed, I have. And Jesus Christ has changed people's lives for centuries and centuries and centuries. There is overwhelming proof that Jesus really was God. And so as a result, as you look at this claim, well, that puts a different take on things, don't you think? Because this isn't just a guy having a go. This isn't just some lunatic that we've wheeled out and he's decided to pop a few things down on paper. 
This is a guy who proved he was God. Then saying, I'm the way and the truth and the life. For no one comes to the Father except through me. Fair enough. You're God. It puts a very different complexion on this incredible claim. Number two, then, the means of Jesus' claim. Again, this is so different to many other religions. See, every religion and philosophy of the world is based on works. All of them. Every single religion and philosophy bases itself on works. So Hasidic Jews, Buddhist monks, Muslims, Hindus, Mormons, whatever you are, every single, every single religion is going to base itself on works. And works will get you acceptance before God. Christianity is exactly the same. Christianity also completely bases itself on works, without any doubt. But the thing that is profoundly different is Christianity is not based on your works. Christianity is based on the works of Jesus Christ and the works of Jesus Christ alone. That makes it profoundly different to every other religion. All the other religions give you a list of things that I have got to do. And if I can try and do these, that maybe if I'm lucky, I'll get into purgatory. And then if I could maybe have 10,000 people pray for me and give money, I might be able to get into heaven. Christianity says, you know what? I'm never going to make it. I can't. But I have a Savior, Jesus Christ, who made it for me. He worked on my behalf. He is my answer. And he is my claim. Christianity is profoundly different from every other religion when it comes to the means of this claim. And what makes the good news of this claim so incredible is that it's all about Jesus. You see, the truth of the gospel doesn't start with Jesus. The truth of the gospel starts way back before there was even time with God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You see, we were made. We didn't just evolve from some amoeba or something like that. We, we were actually made by God. We were created by him. And life was breathed into us as human beings. And we were made by God to be with God, to worship him, to find our identity in him and our security in him and our joy in him. He made us as a loving father caring for his children. And he made us for his glory that we may worship him and find our security and identity and joy in him. The problem comes when we decide we ain't that into him. We'll give him a miss. And so we see that we started to exchange the creator for the created. And that's where sin came into the world. Instead of actually living our lives saying, Jesus, God, you're everything to me. I want to worship you. I want to find my joy in you. I want to live for you in my life. We say, I ain't living for you. I'm living for me. And so we live our lives just for ourselves. We, we do our thing. We start to find our identity and our security in so many if different other things in the world. That's why the world is in such a mess. Because there are so many identities and cravings out there that it is unreal. Nobody finds their identity and worth in God. They find their identity worth in work or, or family. Or money, which then drives drugs and sex and alcohol and all the different things we see because people are craving things that they must have. And from generation to generation, it gets worse and worse and worse. You see how it happens? We live in a broken down house. And that was our choice. That was because we rejected the Creator and instead gave ourselves to the creation. And there are consequences for that. The consequences in the Bible are clear that we're cut off from God because we've rejected Him. And he's holy, so he can't just say, oh, well, no dramas, come on back in. He, he, he's holy. And so as a just judge, our sin must be punished. 
And what is clear in the Bible, Hebrews 9 verse 27, is that man is destined to die once and after that faces judgment. You know what? You may be here this morning and you may not like that. You know, I don't like heights either, but it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. They do. You may not like the fact that you're going to die and give an account for your life, but the Bible paints that as an absolute fact. If you're a Christian, you face judgment. If you're an unbeliever, you face judgment. Does it matter how much you earn, what you believe, who you are, where you live? makes no difference. You're going to stand and give an account before the Lord for your life. That's a fearful thing. That freaks me out. In and of itself, the thought of standing before the maker of heaven and earth, the one who made me and created me for him, the one who I didn't bother with, and then I stand before him and have to give an account for my life. The Bible's clear that if you're found in sin, you're removed from him for all eternity. I don't want that. And that would be all of our stories outside of Jesus. But the claim of Jesus is simply incredible. The claim of Jesus is that he came on the greatest rescue mission ever told. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit sent the Son on a great rescue mission. He came into the earth. He was born into the squalor of a borrowed stable. He then lived his life claiming all the time, I am God. Come to me. I will give you rest. I will bridge the gap between you and God my Father. I am the way and the truth and the life. And as you follow this story on from John 14 into 15 and 16 and 17, you see as he leaves here, he goes from the Last Supper to the Garden of Gethsemane where he sweats, bloods of blood, sweats drops of blood as he considers what lays ahead of him. And then within hours, he dies on a cross. Why? He says, here's why. To give you life. I came as the way and the truth and the life to bring you back to the Father. I came and I died on a cross so that your sin, your rejection of God could be completely and utterly forgiven and that your rejection of God could be completely appeased by me and that instead you could come into the very presence of God through me. See, Christianity does without question believe that the only access to God is through works. But within that, we also believe that our works do not count They're like a filthy rag before the Lord. But through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, it is as if we've never sinned in our lives. It is scandalous grace. We are clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And so the means of Jesus' claim is that he died in our place. He doesn't come to point the way. He's not another prophet saying, well, do this, do that, here's the different things. He doesn't point the way. He is the way. He was the way. That's why he came, to die on the cross, to make a way so that you could be reconciled to the Father, the person who made you, the person who you were always meant to find your identity and security and joy in, but who you, like me, just rejected. Here's the third thing, the fruit of Jesus' claim and what glorious fruit it is. See, all religions to one degree or another, center around the issue of salvation. Everybody's on the hunt for true peace or true acceptance before God, true life. People, people want that. And so different people find it in different things. Some people's religions is soccer or rugby or different things. And that's their religion, man. This is the thing that they're going to find true life in. Other people think, you know what? I've got an issue with God. 
And so I better get into religion. As they become a Muslim or a Buddhist or a Hindu, just trying to earn their way back to God. How, how can I reconcile this thing to God? Because I'm going to die at some point and give an account. And so what am I going to do? Every religion is based on that mentality. All religions, to one degree or another, center around the issue of salvation. And yet Christianity is once again then very unique and very different because we don't follow a Savior who pointed to life. We follow a Savior who came to earth to give life. See, that's why he came. Jesus made a way on the cross so that anyone who put their faith in him as the Lord and Savior of their life could indeed know true life. All his life he claimed that, you know what, if you put your faith in me, then you can enjoy the fruits of salvation. If you put your faith in me as your Lord and Savior, then you can be forgiven of all your sin. Does it mean your sin isn't going to be punished? No, your sin must be punished. But I will take the punishment for you on the cross in your place. If you